Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, everyone. As you know, Mark, Stephen, and I watched the movie Beautiful Boy a few weeks ago. During our last podcast, we talked about our take on the movie from the perspective of addiction researchers and the authors of the Freedom Model for Addictions. The movie was very difficult for us to watch as it depicts exactly how a substance user and his family get fully ensnared in the addiction treatment and recovery trap. More recently, we watched an interview done with David and Nick Sheff. They're the subjects of the movie, the people who wrote it, and it became obvious just how entrenched they both are. They seem happy with the way their lives are today, and we're glad for them, but I can say that I am quite concerned at the same time, and that's in part what we're going to discuss today. The question is, if even just 5% of people get and stay sober and drug-free with the disease-based 12-step treatment model, then isn't that a good thing? What do you guys think? Isn't that good? I mean, you know, I mean, if even one person is helped, then it should be okay for them, right? Well, I think that, that you have to compare that to what would happen to those same percentage of people if they didn't go to treatment. Right, right. And the the question is yeah. at what at what cost do you get the five percent? And the cost is for that five percent being free. See, see the thing about the five percent is they are the people that will continually be ensnared in the recovery movement. So what you're really asking people to do is ninety five percent leave. Right. That's this is the case you're. You're At the end of one year, 95% right? leave. So 95% don't make it. And what does that mean? So you'd have to define that 95%. Not all of them are dying, by the no. way. We'll talk about that. And then the 5%, um, what if they didn't go to treatment? How would they fare? Well, my guess is that they would be fine because we know that uh, they probably would have got well whether they went to treatment or not or in spite of treatment. And uh, and all that research is covered in, in the Freedom Model. But Steve, do you have some comments? Um, yeah, no, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, I I know I've said this before, but you know, I live in New York, I meet a lot of people. They ask me what I do, which is always an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> it because is. Yeah, you know, I'll say, well, I help people with drug problems. And then I'll say, so you're a counselor? Well, no, I'm not a counselor. And, you know, I do an educational approach. I try to, like, end the conversation in a way um, because I know people, everybody knows somebody with a drug problem, right, and (laughs) is in the rehab system, and they've been trained to say that this is a disease and you have to treat it. But sometimes I have to go further because they keep pressing and, you know, either it's a very awkward conversation or they confide in me 
a lot of things about their own drug problems or the problems of people that they know. And I hear it constantly that people have had these problems and quit without ever seeking help or that they went through help and they quit at a later date, right. you know? And so they, and what's interesting is, you know, I sort of give them the permission to credit themselves <laughs> to be, by what I'm saying. And, and they will say, you know, like, really, you know, I, I just eventually had to make a decision, you know, and, and, and they don't get into conversations with people where they can, where they can say that, <laughs> you know, right, um, right. It's not acceptable. So, you know, we have all this data, like Mark said, and we present some of it in the book that most people quit without help. Um, and then, you know, I also just run into the stories, the real stories from people all the time and um, and treatment and time spent mm -hmm. in support groups is usually unfortunately a waste of time you know and it and time where you could have spent really getting over your problem sooner I the the thing that struck me about the movie was how how and the interview was how spot on the dad was in the beginning. Yes. Right? He's concerned. He's scared. He's wondering why his kid likes to get high. And in the beginning, the kid is evasive. Uh, you know, Nick is evasive and um, scared really to tell his dad why he likes to get high because the answer is so painfully obvious, and that is... <laughs> because I like it. Right. 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 Which which you do see in the movie. Yeah. You do see him trying to say that that it's and he even said it in the interview that, oh, you know, once he once he got you know, did meth, it was like nothing he'd ever done before and he, he you know, wanted to he kept chasing that feeling that he got the first time he did it. Um which which is kinda which is true. Uh, but then it goes on to talk about I mean, in the movie, the father admitted that he partied. Yeah. He admitted that he did drugs when he was a teenager. And, and they don't really talk about, you know, why was it okay for the father and why, you know, he just seemed to grow out of it and why his son didn't seem to grow out of it. Like, like that's just kind of glossed over. Well, the whole, the whole truth of, of the situation is glossed over. And what I mean by the truth is the fact that the father actually got it yeah um, one of the things he says is uh, in the interview as well is you know don't give up on your kids you know tough love doesn't always work um, which was good which was good yeah then but then he's forcing him into treatment um, in the same breath and you know is is pushing him down the disease path so because he doesn't know what to do you right know? Um, so it's it's what's so sad and painful for me to watch was the progression of the kid being pulled into the trap of mythology and the interview really made it clear to me because he is the five percent the cost of being sober now for nick is a full immersion in the recovery society 
being now diagnosed mentally ill. Yep. Being medicated. Having, having to accept a disease that does not exist. Being medicated. And then, and then the chapter that we uh, have called Learned Connections, where now we have to find a reason why Nick started getting high when he was young. It can't be as simple as he just liked to get high. It can't be, you know? But when the reality is that is the answer. That is, uh, kids do it because they like it. Now, yeah. if, they, if they have other reasons that they attach, um, for instance, I was an anxious kid, therefore... I got high. Was that the truth or was that the data they were mining for and a story they made up later because the people that are in the health industry around Nick couldn't accept the fact that maybe he just liked to get fucked up, right? And yeah. and see, that's painful for people. When you love it's, somebody, it's painful for you to say, for, for your kid to say to you, I just like it, dad. I just really love it. I love it more than you guys right now, right? So that's unacceptable. So then people start mining for reasons and they start with the cultural ideals, which are, well, he's anxious, he's depressed, he's stressed. They, all these things were covered in that interview. So we don't really know if at 11 years old, 12 years old, 13, 14, 15, if Nick was stressed and anxious and framed his use because of those reasons or whether he just liked get, getting high and then after the treatment effect, after the treatment trap being captured, it, his history was rewritten. Right. Yeah. So you're bringing up narratives, right? We have to yeah. have a socially acceptable narrative for the heavy drug use. And we have to have the recovery narrative. And, um, yeah, and, and like you said, when the father is is it david david's the father right david's the father so, yeah you know david like you said at first um you know uh but he came around and nick came around to the disease view and that's really you know just becoming engrossed in this what you know the recovery charade of what you have to say right. about your drug use to make it palatable and about this journey and you have to say these things so that the parents can intervene in a particular way with treatment and all of this um you talked about uh I, so i think that that's an important theme here um and you can see the narrative in like you said just even that phrase of you know i kept chasing that oh, yeah. initial feeling forever it was the thing I always needed. Those kind of phrases, um, those are straight out of AA and rehab. Oh yeah, you learn those phrases there. You know. Yep. Yeah. Um, you but may when not he even... said when he said the phenomenon of craving right out of the big well, book, I thought, oh god, you know, it it hurt me. It hurt my heart to hear that because I remember regurgitating that nonsense, and and it is nonsense because this whole idea that there's some phenomenon that's happening to you that you have no control over is bunk it's craziness it's crazy talk but but it's what you learn you learn yeah. that mythology through going to aa meetings you learn that it's happening to you and that and he described it perfectly you know uh, the whole mythology with um, once i start i can't stop the phenomenon of craving kicks in but we know yeah. from research that that's not true. I didn't mean to cut you off, Steve. I just wanted to throw that in there because that that 
that's where this mythology, that's the root of it, is this idea that drugs are cunning, baffling, and powerful, and that addiction happens to you, to the susceptible. And nobody's susceptible. People just like to get high, and some people don't. Some people ride bicycles and go cliff diving, and, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. just the way it is. You know? I, I read I read a, I hop, happened upon a quote from a knitting guru the <laughs> other day. And... Um, and she said, you know, practiced properly, knitting can soothe the troubled soul. You know, there's we, we will turn anything into a, a, a self-medication, very right. meaningful, enjoyable, you know. And I don't doubt that knitting is enjoyable. The thing is, with knitting, we don't assume that there's some drug, chemical, that you know. endorphins are the, being released yeah. while you're knitting. Yeah, <laughs> right, you know. So it doesn't have as much of a mystique, you know, as drugs do. Um, we just and, realize and we well, this person and, enjoys this particular activity right now for whatever reason. They find it interesting. Right. Um, and, and we don't disagree with knitting. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah. which is really the, at, the, at the foundation of all the mythology is if we agreed with it, we wouldn't be having this podcast right now. We wouldn't have a 450-page book to have to refute all this mythology. The mythology wouldn't exist if everybody agreed and said, and stop the panic, because you see the panic mm -hmm. driving driving this, this wedge between the father and the son in the movie, you know, and driving him right straight into treatment. That pan if that panic didn't exist, how would Nick have adapted in his drug use? He probably, like not over 90% of crystal meth users, would have stopped on his own with very well, little yeah. fanfare. And let me jump into that for a second because in the interview we watched, and we should let the listeners know this is a recent interview on the Today Show about yep. uh, the new book that they wrote for teens, what teens, need, teens and tweens need to know about drugs. Um, and, you know, he said, uh, David said he was trying to help Nick for 10 years. Okay. That's an important number right there. Yep. 50% of people with stimulant addictions. Crystal meth. Get crystal meth. Yep. Is a stimulant. Right. Um, and, uh, they get over their problem. 50% of them in five years or less. That's the median is, is five years. So he went on for 10 years. Um, that's, you know, that, that would he have quit in five years or less if he... If he didn't if he go had, to treatment within the first few years? He didn't go years? to treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would yeah. he? We, we don't know. And so that's another one of the... Um, one of the costs here is that his problem might have been extended, but we're assuming he has a pro. You know, the, the word problem too is so troubling in in addiction disc and recovery discourse, because you know we, we say you have to admit you have a problem. Well, there's lots of problems, right? One is sometimes I get hung over too much, right? Mm -hmm. I spend too much money on drugs. Um, I'm, um, I'm losing time that I could be giving to, that I wanted to put towards work or towards family or towards school, right? There's a lot of problems 
Um, but, you know, we say you have to admit you have a problem. That means that I am using drugs against my own will. That's usually what that means, right? Right, right. We don't even know what Nick's problem really was as a teenager when he was using drugs. Um, you know, maybe there's clues to that in their books. Um, but, but we say, you know, he had a problem, and wow, it turned into a 10-year problem of just a battle between father and son in and out of treatment and um and overdosing apparently and all sorts of things and I, I don't know that that had to be a problem so that brings us back to the costs what are the costs of intervening in somebody's life and getting them to agree to this narrative that they are addicted that they have a disease that they can't control themselves that something deep and dark drives them uh to continue to do this. Um, I, I think that, yeah. that I, I want to talk about the interview just for a moment. Um, I, I think it's important to, for the listeners to understand that we realize these are two living human beings, right? <coughs> Sorry. And, and we're, not, we're not saying that they're bad people or they're wrong, right or wrong. That's not the point. The point is uh, that by being indoctrinated into this disease way of thinking, um, what happens is there's such a massive distraction because now you have him thinking, I'm mentally ill. I have bipolar disorder. Now, whether he does or not, it's attached to uh, his drug use, you know, stress, being pi bipolar, anxiety. All three of those things were 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 pointed out in the uh, somewhat in the movie and also in the interview. Um, we don't know if if it's true, if that if if he is uh, truly bipolar. And he, here's why I say that: treatment centers now to get paid have to have, in many cases, a mental diagnosis for the health insurance companies or Medicaid to pay the bill. So you have to have a co-occurring disorder. Uh, that is, now think about that. In order for the treatment center to get paid, to get that patient to sign up, they have to now tell the person they have this disorder. Now, having been in this business of helping people with drug problems for 30 years, I came in at a time into the industry uh, when it was very rare that people talked about mental illness um, driving addiction. And the reason is because you didn't need it for insurance companies to pay for treatment. <laughs> Ironically, the, the rates of mental illness and the focus of mental illness driving addiction became really pronounced, almost to the point of uh, nearly 100% of people now have a disorder uh, attached to their use if they go to treatment, um, be when the law changed, when, when those laws changed. So, so it's a money thing. I mean, it's a one-to-one -one correlation. So, um, so it's really important to know that that's part of the trap as well. Now, I don't know what Nick's problems are. I don't think anybody knows but Nick. And I think that's the point, you know? And I really wonder if anybody sat down and said, why do you like getting high in those terms? 
and then just listened. Most likely, if they had asked him that, by the time he was in his first, second, third rehab, he's going to answer and regurgitate with what they've already told him are the reasons. You know, because he's not going to say the reasons, I just like getting high, I like the way it makes me feel, I feel powerful and smart and fun, and, you know, I'm, I have a good time. If he says that, my God, you know, they'll come down on him. So, so there's so much manipulation that happens in treatment that I don't think the father or Nick really fully understand what happened to them. And that's the true tragedy of, of when, I, when I watch that movie. It's painful for me to watch, um, especially now with the whole disease, phenomenon of craving, all the mythology that he's just regurgitating. And uh, it's really troubling and sad. Well, what, what happened and what you can see in the interview uh, more than anything is they both took on the role. Um, David took on the role of father of an addict. Nick has fully embraced his role as an addict in recovery, um, which means he's still an addict. It means that he's still tied to uh, the, there's always going to be this possibility looming over his head that at any point in time, you know, he's going off the deep end. Yeah, he even said that in a way. He did. Yeah. He did. He, he talked about if I if I ingest any mind-altering substance, well, you know what, Nick, you're in your 20s now. Do you honestly think you're going to get to be 75 years old and not have a surgery? Do you honestly think um, that at no point in time you're going to have to be sedated or or that you're not going to get in an accident that's going to require you to go on opiates? I mean, um, you know, the, the this idea, that's what we talk about when we say that he's trapped. I mean, he's truly trapped. I've known people, you know, when we were in AA and we were, you know, doing that program, uh, even though we were doing it in a limited way, but I knew people who were like, can't have opiates. I, you know, I just had major surgery, but I can't have opiates because I'm doomed. I'm going to go off the deep end. I'm going to be out of control. Um, and that, to me, uh, that's not freedom. That's, 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 that's the trap. It's mythology. You're, you know, but, but when you're in it, I'm, I actually, in one of my groups, I've been, um, there was uh, somebody that posted um, in one of the leaving AA groups about, uh, you know, about where he's, he's had, a, he's having a couple drinks here and there, and he's getting a lot of flack from, uh, from people that he knew in AA and from people that he knows in his, you know, in his family but he doesn't feel like he's having an issue. And how does he know, you know, if he was a real alcoholic? And I'm like, well, there's no such thing as a real alcoholic. Um, you're, you know, if you, nobody's ever out of control. And I have to, you know, you have to explain it. And, and now that I'm, you know, and I kind of explained to him, you know, you're kind of in a matrix where, where there's all of this mythology, but it's real. It's real because it's it's what's believed by ninety nine percent of the people that are around you, and it makes it it makes it very real to you. And yeah, it affects um, your life. Yeah, and but once you once you and I told them once you read our book or even our ebook, you know, once you start really beginning to question it and stepping outside, all of a sudden it seems like how could I have ever believed that? I know it's unbelievable when it's once you open your mind to the truth you, yeah. you bring up something that is really really interesting 
and boy, you in order to stay in the matrix, in order to believe the disease ideal, you really have to hang on to it. Yeah, I mean, you really. De- you have to be dedicated to yeah, it. Yeah, you have to be really dedicated to it, and and there's reasons to be dedicated to it. But yeah. eventually, eventually. The truth starts to wear on you. You start thinking to yourself, this just doesn't make sense. And that's one of the things it, when when Nick in the movie was going through, I think he was at his second rehab uh, right after, and he gets high again, he relapses, and his sponsor's talking to him, and he's like, this isn't like cancer. He's screaming at oh, him. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. I, this isn't a disease. This isn't like cancer. And then the, the sponsor says on the other end of the phone, well, Nick, that's your disease talking. Right. <laughs> right? I, I've never heard anybody say that about cancer, by the way. But <laughs> yeah, that's your cancer talking. Uh, uh, yeah, that that would be really awful to say that. Yeah. So, so it's uh, it's it's so sad because Nick was right. He was right. And and it takes so much effort to get somebody to believe in this mythology. It's taken our entire culture. 70 years to embrace it because it's flat out ridiculous. Logically speaking, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Nope. People's behaviors constantly contradict the, the disease concept. The numbers of people that spontaneously just move on with their lives, they say it's spontaneous. It's not spontaneous, really. That's just the term in research. It's, it's normal. Right. Moving on from something you like that you now dislike or are bored with is normal. You know, you go from eight years old riding a bicycle to maybe 12 years old riding a dirt bike to your girlfriend's house, and then all of a sudden now you're driving a car at 16. Do you go back to the bicycle? You don't. I mean, unless you really wanted to, but but the point is, most people don't. Um, You grow out of things. That's a normal. Right. Yeah, most people don't like to do the same things at 30 years old that they like to do at 10 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. But here, what they're trying to say in treatment is that you'll always, always, always like the bicycle. Yeah. And and it really... And crave it. it you'll crave it. You'll exactly. endlessly want it. And, and the person, Nick, was so close to getting out of the trap. His father was so close. And you watch in the movie as they're slowly ensnared. And the question is, what situation in a family dynamic allows for that soil to be fertile? Why, why did the father slip into that? And it's where we started with this whole talk, and that's panic. Yes. The panic you learn in grade school now, and that is that a drug has power over the human psyche. The, that drugs have the ability to change the content of your thoughts and drive you into a drug-taking zombie. That imagery is played over and over in movies, on TV shows, in books, on the radio, in discourse, constantly it's talked about that way. And so the panic is already set in a parent. So then their kid does smoke pot, maybe does put a needle in their arm, which is scary. I get it. I get it. All right? They do drink and drive and have their first car accident. Maybe their friend is killed. Maybe something really tragic happens. They overdose. I get the panic. But if, if they weren't in that fertile soil to begin with, where the panic is already amplified, how would that person react? Well, we, we do have some historical context, context, and that is they wouldn't react the way they do today. They wouldn't put them in a rehab. You know, 50 years ago, they didn't put somebody in rehab. They didn't. 
They just no. dealt with it, and they moved on with their lives, and they got over the problem. The fact that there is a certain group of people in every population, not every population, but in Western populations, that has been stable. They're the people that like to get drunk and high for long periods of time. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's been stable. It's still stable. Um, and uh, But most people don't. Most people grow out of it. It's true. So I'm sorry to just go on and on, but it, it, the movie mm-hmm. is just, it, it saddens me to see people get caught in the trap because my family went through it. And it, and with 11 brothers and sisters and a bunch of them going to rehabs and what it did to my family was truly tragic. Um, it was only after we got away from treatment, away from AA, and everybody rejected it that my family came back together and were completely normal. Yeah, that that's the other part of it that we don't talk about is the, you know, when you people play these roles, right? Steve and I talk about the charade um, of, yep. of, of uh, you know, the, the addict parent and the, or the, the addict's parent and then the addict. And they talk about um, what really happens in this is both people take on this role and there are benefits to taking on the role. There are things about it, you know, um, Steve, you can explain it better. I mean, you, you wrote that part of the book that talks about, you know, why people would would willingly take on the role of addict and parent of addict. Yeah, well, obviously, for the, you know, quote-unquote addict, um, it's a built-in excuse. Yep. Everyone recognizes that. You always have an out to um, go go off the deep end with drugs and say sorry you know I was triggered or things got too stressful or um, you know it's just a very hard disease to beat and relapse is a part of recovery right so it's very attractive to the person who likes to use drugs Um, to the parents uh, and other loved ones it's attractive because so many people think that well you know we have a generally deterministic philosophy. They think if their kid's doing something bad, it must be because of me. You know, I I must have done something to damage them. And um, the disease model of addiction offers a, a sort of guilt-free alternative to them, which yeah. is that, you know, it has nothing to do with what you've done. It's a disease and drugs are addictive, right? Now, I don't think parents are responsible for their kids' drug use. But right, it doesn't have to be one or the other. No. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one or the other. But a lot of people do see it that way. Of course. So yeah. um, so this disease model becomes comforting. And uh, if you sit down with somebody and just say, why are you doing this? And, and they say, well, because I like it. Um, you know, you, you, you get into issues of autonomy that it become more important as people become older, right? Right, and they're adults. But you you get into issues of autonomy. It's like, well, I don't think you should like it, <laughs> you know. Right. I think you, I think you should do other things. And that is, you know, that's like telling somebody who to love, right, and who to not love. These kind of things, and and we kind of can't, you know, we reject that sort of control. And parents want to have control. Um, the disease model offers them the opportunity to try to ex- ex- exercise some control. Yeah. It can come in and say, you have a disease, um, you need treatment 
for it. You know, it doesn't become a question of uh, whether you should or shouldn't stop. It's like, you know, like cancer. If you get the diagnosis, like, <clears throat> well, you should get rid of it, right? You should do whatever it takes to get rid of it. And, um, and they're trying to make um, quitting as much of a no-brainer and to really dodge kind of why the person likes it and just jump to you have to stop. Yeah, it's right? so, so hard. It's so yeah. hard for a parent to accept. Look, at I have three kids, and they're not perfect kids, and I'm not a perfect parent. But knowing what I know and having gone through what I've gone through personally through the treatment system, that whole thing, um, it's really hard to accept when your kids are doing something you know could hurt them. I mean, it's just hard. And, and so the disease concept when it comes to somebody putting a needle in their arm is so comforting. I know that sounds crazy, but it's comforting. It's saying, okay, there's a reason and it's beyond my control because the parent has already been trying to wield control and it's been a miserable failure. So, so all of a sudden they, they can sort of acquiesce that control, give it away and say, okay, the disease has my kid. Now, now this, and here, here's the next step that happens. The disease has my kid, and so I'm going to give my kid to a rehab that's going to take away the disease. That's why we call it treatment. Um, yeah. It's not a treatment, of course. Treatment is taking antibiotics or chemotherapy. It's a physical thing. But, but in this case, we're, you know, we're going to treat the kid. Now, the parent doesn't ask the questions usually. Um, how effective it's going to be. They just assume that the professional is going to take over because, well, they'll do anything to save their kid. And that was definitely, definitely clear throughout the movie, just how far the father was willing to go to save his kid. But, but the, the allure of the disease caught both of them. And that is, my kid now has an excuse. The father, it's not his fault treatment takes over i'm willing to pay the bill whatever it costs and if my kid has to go away forever so be it took the father a while to 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 cave into that one he hated the fact that his kid was just going to be sitting at meetings making coffee <laughs> even bitched about it a little bit there in the movie um mm -hmm. because it doesn't quite make sense but eventually but eventually and you can see it in the interview now they've completely succumbed to that allure right Right? The father, the kid's safe. He's on medications to take care of the anxiety, which is uh, supposedly the root cause of, of Nick's yeah. issues, um, which now it probably is. It probably is. So now when he's anxious, he takes medications, as he describes. Um, instead of taking crystal meth, he takes other medications to quell his bipolar and his anxiety issues. Um, so at what cost is the 5%? That's where we started this, right? At what cost? And that 5% is you give away your freedom. You give away your ability to problem solve. And you give it away to the treatment complex, to simple black and white answers. Take this pill, go to a meeting, serve others. Black and white, it's the same for everybody. You either give in to it or you're going to relapse and die. And you can see that in the father with the black and white answers, it's a heck of a lot easier to grab a hold of that than it is to sit there in the living room with a 14-year-old who's sticking a needle in his arm and try and really figure out 
holy cow, you really like this. How do I deal with that? Right? Yeah. Because no parent's equipped to deal with that. It's just really hard. It's just really hard to deal with that sort of uh, gray situation filled with emotion and terror. So, so the point of what I'm saying here is there's answers in the gray, and the answers lie within Nick's mind, and people should have asked Nick straight up why he liked it and then allowed him to be honest about it without the treatment being shoved down his throat. And if that had happened at 13, 14 years old, you'd be amazed at how quickly kids get over these things. I, I've had these conversations. Luckily, my kids haven't shot off or anything to that degree, but they haven't because it's not that they haven't met people who have done it. It's not like they haven't been offered tons of drugs. It's not like they haven't experienced the same things all kids experience these days or any days. Um, but they have answers, and we have an open discussion about these sorts of things. And uh, consequently, what little experimenting they've done has been quick uh, because I didn't panic and I knew not to. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm not saying Nick and uh, David are bad people or that, that you know, they're stupid or you know, anything like that. Most parents react the way they do because the narrative is set before the kid ever had a problem. All the things, all the fears are already set in our culture. The treatment paradigm is so pervasive that the, the stage is set. All, lead, all roads lead to treatment. That's the way our system works today. And it's incredibly, incredibly unfortunate because it's based in lies. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. We're, we're, we're coming up to it. We actually went over. Um, the question becomes, is Nick going to be okay? And that, that you know what? The, uh, we don't know. We have no way of knowing what his future holds because of his belief system, which is so incredibly problematic. Um, you know, it long-term success for that paradigm is pretty poor. Yeah. Um, and the odds are pretty good that, that things won't turn out as good as they hope. But, you know, perhaps his preference for, for being high has changed. By listening to the interview, I'd say it hasn't. He still talks about getting high on meth like it's the best thing that ever happened to him. That concerns me. Um, you know, I, 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 can, I don't have a preference for being high like I once did. I actually was in the hospital recently. I had to get morphine. It was horrible. It was, I did not like it one bit. <laughs> um, Your preference changed. My preference changed. And, and I, you know, it, it doesn't have that, that same allure that it did when I was 20 years old. Yeah. Um, so, so I do hope that at some point Nick is, and I think sometimes when people are in the paradigm, when they're in the recovery society, they keep talking like it's the best thing ever, I know, even though I know. their preference has changed. Yeah. Yes. They, don't you think that's true too, Steve? I, yeah, absolutely. A lot of people go on mouthing these things and they don't even necessarily believe them anymore. And that's another interesting thing yeah. that I run into when I do talk to true believers. The ones that are doing really well, they turn out not to be such true believers. That's really so true. In, you know, <laughs> if you really get into conversation with them, a lot of people um, will eventually, you know, say, you know, they'll they'll tell you that, well, that disease thing, yeah, it's more kind of a metaphor. You yes, know? they and do say that. There, you're, well, you know why they're doing good. Do you, you know? know? Do you know what's funny is when I watch the interview, I feel and, and the movie. I think the reason it bothered me so much is because they're, 
both Nick and, and David are so close to being out of the trap on so many levels, so many times, the things they said. And I don't think the writers of the, of the movie or even understood what they were portraying. But it was it was so well done. The movie was so well done, and and it was very accurate for what I've experienced having worked with substance users for thirty years. Um, but there's so many times that the father's intuition was spot on, and then the treatment complex knocked him down a few pegs and made him second guess himself. And and obviously they did with Nick as well. You know, we say they're fully immersed, but I have this sensation that if they read the Freedom Model. Uh, they would go, holy cow, I get this. You know, because what we know is that people that ride that fence, when they allow their intuition to rule, and they say, Jesus, isn't quite making sense. You and know? I feel like I'm going to be okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. But like, I might be parroting all of this stuff that I learned that I, you know, but but I... But I feel like I actually am I'm beyond the problem. Yeah, I actually want to move on. Yeah. And, and we've heard it now many times over the last year since the book's been published that what the freedom model does is it allows them, it gives the person permission to move on. Yes, <laughs> to, to not be go. tied to, like, like why would you want to be tied to this dark past where, which, you know, was the lowest point in your life? Why would you want to be tied to that forever? Why would you want that to have you make, decisions in the future right why do i need to be in recovery yeah you know yeah. So, so anyway i i hope they get out of the trap i, I really hope do. they do too any last words steve uh no <laughs> <laughs> i think we've covered so much well that yeah. was our that's our last commentary on the movie beautiful boy if you haven't seen it it's a really well done movie um i can highly recommend it and, um, but it, it definitely shows a great illustration on the inherent problems um, with the, the treatment and recovery trap. So thank you everyone, and we'll talk again later. Bye everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by the Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out soberforever.net. Once again, that's soberforever.net.